right, open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 54. Isaiah chapter 54. And the study tonight, the chapter 9, is about a perpetual covenant of peace. A perpetual covenant of peace. The subject of chapter 24 is the regathered and restored wife of Jehovah, that being Israel, uh, Jerusalem. Uh, the rejoicing and the rejoicing and righteous restored wife of Jehovah. It makes sense that this chapter, chapter 54, follows chapter 53 because it's the song that goes with salvation and the future miracles of Israel. Because the Redeemer, Christ, is coming to Zion one day, and someday they're going to see him. The picture here is that of Jehovah God, the faithful husband, forgiving Israel, the unfaithful wife, and restoring her to the place of blessing. The prophet Isaiah has used the marriage image before in chapter 50, verses 1 through 3. And he'll use it again in chapter 62, verse 4. And Jeremiah also used it in Jeremiah 3, 8. And it's an important theme in uh, Hosea chapter 2 and in Ezekiel chapter 16 and 23. Israel, remember, was married to Jehovah at Mount Sinai. But she committed adultery. And it wasn't long after the marriage that she did that. That she committed adultery by turning to other gods. And the Lord had to abandon her for a while. But the prophets promise that Israel will be restored when Messiah comes and when he sets up his kingdom. So let's begin with verse 1a, chapter 54. And it reads, Sing, O barren, you who have not born, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child. When Isaiah looks at the suffering servant, which we saw in chapter 53, he has one thing to say to us. Break out into loud and joyful singing, he says there in verse 1. In other words, let joyful song erupt from you. Let it explode from you, pour out from you. And if it doesn't, why is that? Why don't we let it just pour out of our souls when we sing? when we worship God. This might be one of the most disobeyed commands in the Bible. What keeps us from singing out loud with this joy Isaiah is talking about to the Lord? Our pride? Embarrassment? That holds us back? Paul said, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. In God's excitement, he's creating a new lively happiness in Christ. And we have to rejoice with him because, you see, if we don't, we're likely to let our hearts get cold towards salvation. You know, that was one of the warnings, one of the rebukes to the church, the seven churches in Revelation, to the church of Ephesus. You know, you've, you've left your first love. And the word left means neglect. And if we neglect to keep that fire going. Our hearts can get cold towards salvation because that holy, uh, excited joy is salvation. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, his followers praised him with loud praises in Luke 19, 37 and 38. Listen to what he said. It says, Jesus was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives. 
the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. And they said, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But the Pharisees, on the other hand, they didn't like it one bit. But Jesus said in Luke 19, 39 and 40, If these people keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. So as we enjoy this good news, the gospel, that Jesus took away our sins and, and, and he broke the hold that sin had on our life, and, we get, and that we get to start a new life, that should make us excited. That should make us sing and cheer. I like what John Calvin said. The church is the place where the gospel is preached. Gospel is good news. Good news makes people happy. Happy people sing. But then, too, unhappy people may sing to cheer themselves up. In Psalm 47, verses 1 and 2, the psalmist said, Oh, clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to God with the voice of triumph. For the Lord Most High is awesome. He is, great. He is a great king over all the earth. And isn't that, isn't that the truth? Yes. Jewish worship consisted of shouting, clapping, and blowing trumpets. Jewish worship was, was enthusiastic. The early church patterned its worship after the synagogue and emphasized prayer, the reading and expounding of scripture, and the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, when the Jewish people clapped their hands and they shouted, it was to the Lord in response to his marvelous works. They didn't do it. They didn't clap their hands to praise the people who participated in the worship service. And, and that's, you know, something that, that, that I'll have to make clear is that, you know, when we clap at the end of the song, it's for the Lord. It's for the songs that we're singing, not, not to the worship folks or not to the pastor when he comes off the stage and people go, it's not for the pastor. It's for the Lord. It's for the word, the word of the Lord. It's for the songs of the Lord that we sing to him. That's who this applause goes to in, in, in Psalm chapter 47. It was to the Lord in response to his marvelous works. Again, they didn't do it to praise the people who participated in the worship service. The test of a church's faith isn't just in the wording that, that we find on the statement of faith in the back of the bulletin. It's also the gladness in its worship. The gospel demands a cheerful spirit. If we're not in bondage to sin anymore and not going to hell anymore and we're going to receive every blessing that God has for us and if nothing can stand in our way of being restored to God because it's all ours through the merit of Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners, if that can't make us smile, what can? What can? Now, what kind of restoration is it going to be? Well, first of all, joy. Joy will be restored, and it will be a reason to sing. And the occasion for this joy here in chapter 54 is Israel's deliverance from captivity. And we can relate that to our deliverance from captivity of sin. That joy that, that, that when Christ came into our lives, it broke that, that 
that captivity to sin, whatever that might have been. Maybe it had been a captivity, an enslavement to alcohol or to drugs or, or, or whatever it might be. But the greatest fulfillment is going to be when the Redeemer comes to Zion and the nation is born once again. Israel will be restored and Israel will be, a, will be fruitful when the nation will increase and need more space. Now look at the rest of verse 1 through verse 3. Then uh, it says, okay, let's, let's just go from verses 1 through 3. Sing, O barren, you who have not born. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child. For more, are, for more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Verse 2. Enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch out the curtains of your dwelling. Do not spare, lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you shall expand to the right and to the left, and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. The nation was reduced inside because of, uh, in size because of the Babylonian invasion. But God's going to help them to multiply again. He's going to help them to grow again. And at the end of this age, only a believing remnant is going to enter the kingdom. But the Lord is going to enlarge the nation abundantly. Isaiah is saying here in these verses that Israel may feel like a barren woman who can't have any children, but she's going to increase to the glory of God. God is going to do for her what he did for Abraham and Sarah. You see, to be childless, childless in those days, to be barren, it was a terrible shame for a woman. It was a big disgrace. Families depended on children for their survival, and especially when the parents got old. Israel here was like an unfruitful woman with no children. But God was going to allow her to have many children. And it said the tents will need to be enlarged and the deserted cities are going to be alive again. They're going to be lived in again. This was cha would change her sorrow into singing. Verse 4. Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed. Neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. For you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. Israel's restoration to her land will also mean confidence, according to verses 4 through 10. Isaiah says here in verse 4, do not fear. And then he explains why there's no need for them to be afraid. For starters, their sins were forgiven. That being true, why should they be afraid of the future when God had wiped out their past sins? Yes, the people had sinned big time against their God, but he's forgiven them. And this meant that they got a new start. You know, new creatures in Christ. The old is, is, is gone, the new, everything becomes new, and, and that means you got a clean slate, you got a clean record to start off with. They could forget the shame of their sins as a young nation as well as the reproach of their widowhood in the Babylonian captivity. They can forget all of this now, Isaiah says. Look at verses 5 and 6. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth, for the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused, when you were refused says your God. Another reason to have confidence is the steadfast love of the Lord. Isaiah says, hey, Jehovah is your maker. 
And he's not going to destroy the people that he created for his glory. He's their redeemer. He can't sell them, turning them over to, his, to the hands of his enemies. He's their husband. He's not going to break his covenant promises. Like an unfaithful wife, Israel had forsaken her husband, but he had not permanently abandoned her. He only gave her a chance to see what it was like to live in a land where people worshiped false gods. And sometimes that has to happen. You know, things, they say things, you know, look greener on the other side. The grass looks greener on the other side. And, and, and sometimes, you know, God will say, you know what? If you think that's the case, then he'll, he'll allow you to do that. He'll give you the chance to see what it's like to live in a land where you think things are better. So he allowed them to live in a land where they worship the gods. And then he would woo them back. Love them back to himself. And she wouldn't be an abandoned wife anymore, verse 6 says. She felt forsaken. But God didn't give her up. The church is the chosen bride of the creator and ruler of the universe. The youthful wife she's called here in verse 6. The Lord's first love was rejected only temporarily. Again, for a lesson for her to learn. Like Hosea with Gomer. God hadn't divorced Zion, though he punished her with temporary rejection so that he could receive her back again to his heart that had so much love for her. And it was kind of like the prodigal son you know, who took off. He didn't want to be under the father's rule. And, and he takes off. He thought it would be better if he got out there in the world and lived it up and had a great time. And he gets out there and finds out, hey, it wasn't all that I thought it was going to be. And he goes, man, I sure had it good at home. And he wanted to go back home. And that's what happened to Israel. She thought, hey, you know, the, the worshiping gods would be better and wants, wanted to be like the other nations, wanted to be like the other people. And so God says, you know, if that's what has to happen, then he, so he lets her go. But then finds out, hey, you know what? Our God loves us, loves us. And, and, and he wooed them back to her. And so, again, a person that has been wooed, you know, and, and loved. And again, she was called a youthful wife, the youthful wife. And when they were wooed and loved in their youth, they regret it more when they're rejected. And the more joyful they are when they're restored, when they're truly repentant. They recognize, oh man, like the prodigal son, man, I messed up. I want to go back and tell my father I'm sorry. Because again, they could receive again, to be received into his heart because he had so much love for her. Verse 7 and 8. For a mere moment, God noticed, for a mere moment I have forsaken you. God says, for a while I forsook you, but with great mercies I will gather you. Notice that. With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you. What wonderful words. In that day, not just Israel, but all of us are going to look back at what we thought was a terrible time here in this life. You know, and, and, and it, 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 we're going to look at it like Paul did. It really was a light affliction. 
which is but for a moment, or which was but for a moment. And that terrible time here in life when we were going through it, it will work for us, Paul said, an exceeding and eternal weight of glory. In other words, it's going to work for us in a positive way. We need to get our eyes focused on things which are not seen, Paul said, rather than the things that are seen. And Paul gave us his anointed perspective of his trials in three ways. And when he said that, that we have it's our afflictions light, which is but for a moment, and will work for us an exceeding eternal weight of glory, again, he, he gave us three ways here in his anointed perspective. He says, first of all, the difficulties of the situation, or said the difficulties of the afflictions. He says, they were light. The difficulties of the, of the afflictions are light afflictions. Paul says his trials were light. Now think about that. Even though he was nearly stoned to death, spent time in prison more than once, shipwrecked four times, experienced numerous other, numerous other problems, hunger, cold, thirst, you know, all kinds of, of terrible situations. But he says in comparison to eternity, though they were heavy, they seemed light. Secondly, the length of his afflictions. He said they were for a moment. Even though his life was filled with trials, Paul says they are only for a moment. You see, when he compared them to eternity, he could say that. The third perspective Paul had of his afflictions, the advantages of his affliction. He said they work for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Afflictions bring great blessings. But, we all agree, I'm sure, that while we're going through them, that is, at the time of the affliction, it's really hard to understand that truth that Paul is giving. But notice how Paul contra contrasted the advantages with the difficulties. The difficulties were light, but the advantages were heavy in the sense of they were exceeding, they were weighty, they outweighed the difficulties. The difficulties were short. They were but for a moment. The advantages were long. They are eternal. The difficulties were grievous. That is, they were an affliction, but the advantage of them were glorious. For his, for they were they're for his glory. This is a great outlook to have on trials as Paul did. And Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.18, we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. In times of trials, what we have to do is get our eyes off of the temporal and onto the eternal if we're going to have a victorious outlook when it comes to trials. Remember, if you look at God through your circumstances, he'll seem very small and very far away. But if by faith you look at your circumstances through God, He'll draw very near and he will reveal his greatness to you. Now in verses 7 through 8, the Hebrew would read like this. If I abandon you, it was but for moments. But now I hug you to myself right tenderly. In a burst of wrath, I did hide my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on you, says the eternal one, your redeemer. 
The psalmist said in Psalm 30, verse 5, his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may last through the night, but joy comes with the morning. We read in 1 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11. Again, remember, marriage vows are too sacred for the separation of divorce. God didn't separate or divorce from his wife because, again, the marriage vows are sacred, and God tells us that in Scripture. Even in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 and 11, it says, A wife is not to depart from her husband. The word depart means divorce. But even if she does depart, divorce, let her remain unmarried or recon be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. So in this case, when she departed from Jehovah God, her, her, her husband, she was out there, and she realized it wasn't everything she saw, thought it was worshiping the foreign gods was not as good as the love of God and the power of God and what he could do for us. And again, she reconciled to her husband. What God has joined together, let no man put us under. True love seeks reconciliation. God's wrath is but for a moment, but his love and his mercy are eternal. Whenever we rebel against God and we won't listen to his warnings, he has to chasten us. I mean, it's the same, again, it's a great example of a, of a good parent. We warn our children when they're little, if you don't do what I tell you, you're going to, you know, you're going you're to be punished. We have to chasten them. And he does it to us in love as we do it to our children in love. You see, our Father, our Heavenly Father cannot allow His children to sin and get away with it. But the purpose of His chastening is to bring us to repentance. It's not to punish us. It's not to take revenge and get back at us for, for what we've done. It's, it's to help us, to bring us to repentance. It's to help us produce the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Righteousness. When God spanks his disobedient children, it may hurt. But you know what? It never harms them. It's always for our good and for his glory. Verse 9. He says, For this is like the waters of Noah to me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so, I have, so have I sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. This, this verse guarantees what he said in verse 8. He said, With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord Redeemer. So what verse 9 does, it guarantees the truth he said in verse 8. He says, I'm not going to pour out my wrath on you anymore. Just like there won't be another flood like the one in Noah's day. God is saying here that this outpouring of my wrath is regarded by me as the flood of Noah. I look at this pouring out of my wrath as I do when I poured out the flood on Noah's day. He says, I will regard my oath in the one case as surely in the other. He says, just as I will not pour out my wrath on you again, I won't pour out my wrath like I did on Noah either. Just as God promised that he'd never bring another flood, he also promised, hey, he'd never be angry nor rebuke his people like he did before. Now here, when he says that God isn't promising here that the church will never suffer affliction again or the removal of his favor. 
But it is a promise that a catastrophe like the one in Noah's day would never happen again. The sad thing about the exile of God's people was that it broke the theocracy to an end. It brought the theocracy to an end, God's rule to an end, because they chose to worship idols. Make it seem like the dynasty of David was over and the promises of God were cast aside. Now, while other terrible, uh, terrible calamities would come upon the church, never again would she have to experience anything like this, as he just mentioned in verse 8 and 9. Verse 10. For the mountains shall depart, and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace not be removed, says the Lord, who has mercy on you. Isaiah is telling the people, heck, if you feel that God is going to break his covenant he made with Abraham, Isaiah wants you to know you're wrong. God will never break his covenant. The commitment and the unchangeability of God's promise of grace is now shown by comparing it to the mountains here in verse 10 and the hills. You know, again, in, in men's eyes, nothing seemed more permanent than the mountains and the hills. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So again, he's showing that just as firm and solid as those mountains and hills are, so is my word, even more so. So Isaiah is saying here that the mountains would move from their place and disappear before God's mercy would ever leave us. God's mercy will never stop being with his people, nor will his covenant of peace ever slip away. This is a covenant that God has made with us that brings man peace. And it's another way of showing his mercy. The, refer- the reference is to the covenant of grace, where God freely offers life and salvation to sinners. And the thought is that God has inter- entered into a covenant with man, and this covenant is of, of such a nature that it brings peace to man like nothing else does. You know, people today and have been for a long time been looking for peace. And they can't find it. They can't find it. But this covenant that God has made with man through salvation, again, it it is of such a quality, of such a nature that it brings peace to man. Verse 11. O you afflicted one, tossed with tempest and not comforted, behold, I will lay your stones with colorful gems and lay your foundations with sapphires. Now here in verse 11, this is a picture of the new Jerusalem. We see it in Revelation chapter 21, verse 22. And you see there's no mention of any temple in it. Isaiah is speaking of physical magnificence, magnificence and spiritual life of external beauty and inner security for this new city of God. Another picture of the miracle of grace is a city that shines with sparkling jewels, a city of such abundance that it just boggles the mind. Who built this city? Who had the creativity to build this city? Who had the inspiration, the imagination? Who had the wealth to build this city? God did. And this is the city where his people are going, to will, are going to live forever. 
Listen to Revelation chapter 21, 18 through, uh, uh, through 21, as he speaks of this, this new city, the new, the new city of God. John says, the, con- the construction of its walls was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth uh, sardonyx, the sixth sardius, and the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth is, is, is chrysoprase, the eleventh is jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each individual gate was one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Again, who could build the city? Who had the creativity, the inspiration, the imagination, the wealth to build this? God did. And this is where we're going to live with him forever. Verse 12. He says, I will make your pinnacles of rubies, your gates of crystal, and all your walls of precious stones. Here in verse 12, Isaiah is continuing to finish, and he finishes the beautiful beautiful description that he started in verse 11. The whole city wall is going to be made out of precious stones. Verse 13, all your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. This is the day when the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth, and this will bring peace. Jesus applied this verse to his own disciples in John 6, 45, where Jesus said, it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. The reason for the beauty of the inhabitants is that the source of the teaching is God himself. It beautifies people. God's word is teaching. It beautifies people. It's the teaching of the, uh, of the word. It's not by a secret divine revelation to each believer, but through the preaching of the truth of God's word. But as we know, the preaching of the truth by itself is not enough. Because there are a lot of people who hear the word of God and they still reject it. So in addition to hearing the word of God, there has to be an inner work of the Holy Spirit. That's why the Holy Spirit is so important to us in our life. And that's why I'm glad we've been, we went, just finished the book of Acts and, and the ladies are, are teaching on the Holy Spirit. We need to know more about the Holy Spirit because we need more of the Holy Spirit. And unless the Holy Spirit makes one willing and able to believe, they won't believe. Jesus said in John 16, 8, the helper, speaking about the Holy Spirit, will convict the world of sin. He's the one who convicts us of sin. We become precious stones for building the temple of God. Calvin says this, when the Lord has formed and polished us by his spirit, the Holy Spirit, and has added to the external preaching of the word of God in the inter- internal efficacy of the spirit. And as a result, as a result, Zion's inhabitants will have an abundant peace that only comes to those who know the Lord and are his disciples. Verse 14. In righteousness you shall be established, you shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. Now here, Isaiah describes for us another viewpoint of the truth. Following righteousness, expressed or shown through faithful obedience, we're free from fear. 
It's the freedom of fear. This is also a miracle of God's grace. Not only will oppression not come near God's people, but even destruction can't come near them. Look at verse 15. Indeed, they shall surely assemble. But notice, not because of me, God says. Whoever assembles against you shall fall for your sake. God says through Isaiah, if any nation comes to fight you, and again, the, 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 the rest of these verses here and what I'm going to share, think about that in the time that we're living especially with the war going on in Ukraine, all right? He says, if any nation comes to fight you, it's not because I sent them. Whoever attacks you will go down in defeat. Now, this isn't to say that God doesn't foreordain whatever happens, but simply to point out that God himself does not originate the gathering of enemies against his people. Verse 16, behold, notice, I have created the blacksmith who blows the coals in the fire, who brings forth an instrument for his work, and I have created the spoiler to destroy. This is speaking of the sovereignty of God. In other words, technology for making weapons. Notice again in verse 16, he says, uh, Behold, I have created the blacksmith, the maker of weapons. Speaking of the sovereignty of God, technology for making weapons is subject to the sovereignty of God. God is still the mediator of weapons of war. And, you know, we hear about smart bombs. We hear about unmanned drones. We hear about all the technology today with, with, with military weaponry. Isaiah says the man who builds the weapons and the man who uses them to destroy are both under the sovereignty of God and have to surrender them to God when God wills it. Now, God's servants may now be exposed to the attacks and the false accusations of evil men. But there's a time that's coming when they'll be untouchable. Not only has the Lord created the workmen, that is those who make the weapons, but also those who use the weapons. Not only has he created the workman, but he's also created the one who uses the weapon for destruction, the warrior. The warrior does not act independently of God, even though he might think he does. So this verse is very helpful for studying God's providence, His sovereignty, His will. It teaches us that nothing happens, not even the destroying acts of the enemies of God's people apart from God Himself. God is, complete, is in complete control of every situation, of every event. But at the same time, we're not to blame God for the evil that men do. But in his secret providence, in God's perfect will, in God's purposes, God controls the events and the behavior of men, and he uses them as the instruments of his anger. Let's close with verse 17. Notice, no weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. So in view of the fact that God has created the one who makes the weapon as well as the one who uses it, no weapon can possibly su succeed in attacking Zion. That means they will not succeed in their design or their purpose when they come against Israel. And we see that in Ezekiel 36, 7 and 8. Not only that, every tongue 
that comes against Zion. In respect to judgment, Zion will be able to rebuke it as being false. It's not true. This is referring to a formal accusation brought in a court rather than a reckless gossip. The tongue represents the accuser, the one making the charge. When these accusations are brought, Zion or Israel herself will be able to say they're false, they're not true. But in both of these forms of opposition to the church, that is whether it's a formal accusation or it's a reckless gossip, the church of God is going to be victorious. This inheritance, verse 17 talks about, and this righteousness is from him. The servants of the Lord receive the miraculous salvation that's described here as the free gift of God's grace. Why? Only because of the servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ, who suffered in their place and made an offering for sin himself so that he might see a seed. These servants of the Lord are that seed. Even in the past and the present, God has been opposed to anti-Semitism. No enemy of God's chosen nation, Israel, has ever prospered. Think about that. All you have to do is look at history. And those who experience this truth firsthand are Pharaoh, Haman, Herod, Hitler, just to name a few. And there are a lot of anti-Semites today in this country. They need to know this verse. Because this verse is a promise of God. And God holds to his promises. Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful word, Lord. Father, help us to not fear. You, For you have made a covenant with us, God, to protect us, to watch over us, God. Lord, we know how, it all, how it's all going to end, Lord. We see the signs of your coming, Lord. The wars, the rumors of wars, the pestilence, God. The violence, the division among the human race, God. Brothers against brothers and family against family, God. And Lord, we, we, we see it. The persecution. Not what it was in scriptures as of now, but if you tarry, who knows where it will go. But we can see persecution in a lighter sense right now. Lord, we look to you, we look up. Let us not look at our circumstances, but let us look up and see you standing at the threshold, waiting for the Father's call. Son, go get your bride. So, Lord, we thank you. And, Lord, we... we Father, I, I, in my own sense, I, I see you setting this, the, the supper, the, the table, the supper of the Lamb. As you've called many brothers and sisters home already, Lord. And we've experienced that in the last couple of years, Lord. You're setting that table and you're waiting for the rest. And when that time's come, time comes, you will, be, you will be there to serve us, the scripture says. And we'll be rejoicing. with those who have gone before us. 
our friends, our family, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And they're waiting for us. So may we be excited to join them for that time of, of feasting together with the Lord. And Father, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you.